Welcome to Voices of Baby Loss, presented by me, Caroline Verdon. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and Jen Coates, who is the Director of Bereavement Support and Volunteering at SANS. SANS is a UK-based charity whose purpose is to save babies' lives and support bereaved families. We also aim to give a voice to parents who've been touched by pregnancy and baby loss. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SANS Charity and on Twitter at SANS UK. Which is also where you can get in touch with us if you'd like to comment on or get involved in the podcast. We are both touched by baby loss and so this topic is really close to our hearts. Coming up on this week's episode. I can't imagine we have a live baby. You know? I, can't, I can't allow myself to think of that. It was then... When he was born and I had a lovely baby boy who was born alive, I guess then I got a bit more in touch really with how much it had affected me. One guy, he wanted to play the first few minutes of a, a song that meant a lot to him, that sort of reminded him of his baby. We all got up and stood there in the changing room. He put his phone on and played it and we all stood there in a circle with arms around each other. So welcome along to episode nine of the Voices of Baby Loss podcast. We wanted in this episode to talk about men's mental health. Um, but it, f- it feels a bit uncomfortable because we're women. We're women. <laughs> um, and so it's not really something, obviously, that we have a true insight to. You know, I've seen my husband go through um, some struggles with his mental health, you know, particularly after we lost Alex, but that's still a female perspective. Um, so we decided that the person who was probably best placed to answer all of our questions was Dr. David Hall, who he himself has lost a child. He lost his son, Rory, but he's also a consultant psychiatrist. And so has, as well as a personal view, he has all of the professional knowledge to back that up as well. Our son died 26 years ago, which sounds like quite a long time. And sometimes it feels like quite a long time. Other times it feels very recent. Rory was our third child, the two little girls. And yeah, we'd moved back to our home area, which is where we are now still, Dumfries, and uh, I got a consultant job and all the rest of it, so I was a young, budding psychiatrist. And Alison's previous pregnancies have been pretty straightforward. This time it was a wee bit different, but you know, no no major anxieties. And in fact, she went into labour and everybody thought it was going great. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, anyway, it was full term, and... Um, uh, and as I went to good going, good going labour, her mum's a, a, an actual midwife. She was a bit more retired now, but uh, and she thought, oh, no, this baby will be born within the next couple of hours. Um, and then there was a bit of a hitch, you know, the, the, the midwife who was with us. She said, oh, he's, he's, the baby's past meconium, but it seems fine otherwise. I subsequently learned, I mean, I should have known from my own, because as a doctor, I you know a bit about these sort of things, but um, it was probably at that point... She'd been taken really seriously, but it wasn't. So, but anyway, without going into too much detail, um, we, th- we were reassured by a fetal scalp monitor thing and the consultant appeared. No, it's all going to be fine. But then he was born and he was clearly very distressed. Big boy, nine pounds odd, um, and perfectly, it should have been fine. But it was the, the process of delivery where he had. Um, inhaled meconium and so he, so the, the resuscitation went on for about 15 minutes but he died so uh, yeah at the time 
I remember thinking, oh well, well, if I was just kind of numb, really, and, and I, I, I said, I basically said, I said, well, we might as well go home then. Which luckily there was a, a another midwife who was very sensible, you know, because it was, this was 1996, before, and there was no bereavement suites. But this midwife was very kind to us and took us to to what was a kind of cupboard thing, you know, a storeroom, and let and made made us stay for the day, but just for the day. Uh, with her, with Ruri. Um and I remember things like we took some photos, but thought we meant to take photos. And I had a video camera, and I remember thinking, oh, should, should I take a wee video? So we did take a little video clip, which was about 10 or maybe 20 seconds long, which is obviously very precious. But uh, again, nowadays, you'd be encouraged to create memories, stay overnight, all this sort of thing. But uh, so we spent the afternoon, you know, he was born at four minutes to bed, they died at 30 minutes past. And uh, I think we were there for about seven at night. And we left and waved to the window to the midwife holding him. And that was it. So, and it was, yeah. It's always strikes me how people who haven't experienced the loss of a child seem to think and we were talking about this the other day, seemed to view it as almost like somebody's been in and had, I don't know, an appendix removed or something and they'll be better in a couple of weeks and yeah. life sort of goes on. And that is so far removed from the reality. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it was, um, I mean, in a way, what struck me as I composed myself was that, um, you know, on one level, you know, I was, I was a highly trained doctor and psychiatrist and I thought I understood how these things work. When it came down to the actual the trauma and dealing with something, I was as useless as anybody, you know, like probably more useless because I was trying to be kind of, right, let's go home and be in charge. And I went back to work after my statutory three days of paternity leave or whatever. And, you know, and folk kept asking how. Alison was. One or two folk asked me how I was, mm. which, which almost made me, made me cry. But <clears throat> None of us know what to do in that situation, though, do we? It doesn't matter how much we know medically. It, you're a human being in that situation, and everything is stripped away, isn't it? You're just there feeling yeah. literally <clears throat> like your skin has been removed. Yeah. And yeah, that you've got no no protection, really. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Lost, really, was how I felt. And I, I, I wrote a wee blog about it eventually, which and I, I described myself as, I felt like a lost boy. And I did feel like a wee boy. That just kind of, you know, show me the way through here, please. You know? That summarises it perfectly, a lost, a lost boy, because you spend so, you know, you get to adulthood and you think you, you know, you know how to experience things. And, and even in new situations, you kind of know how to handle yourself and you know you know, instinctively what to say or what not to say. And then yeah. this takes you right back, doesn't it? You, you are absolutely like that, like a completely lost child having yeah. no yeah. bearings, no no understanding of how to feel, what to feel, where to, mm-hmm. what to do, where to go. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so that was, in a way, I suppose that where, when I think about it, you know, some of the you know, people who are used to, dealing with me as this 
confident, if not slightly arrogant, high-flying young consultant. And then, you know, inside I was kind of feeling terrible. And uh, so when I so went back to work, let's say I was trying to be as professional. And I, I, did, I did manage, I did fine. But again, when I think about it, it's, yeah, okay. I needed more time and I needed something or other. And again, and, and I threw myself into trying to look after my wife, but as you're, you know, kind of damaged and distraught yourself at some level, two kind of injured people trying to, try to help each other isn't always the best thing. And actually understanding that now, when I speak to other people, I say, look, you know, don't feel bad because you can't help your partner because of course you can't, Christ, you've been through all this, you know. Um, so you need to look after yourself. And um, I mean, re recently I was at a, some dinner and I met a, a, a critical anaesthetist a, a who, who runs a, a critical care unit for babies and sees lots of babies dying and who sadly, you know, who um, and sees lots of bereaved parents. And so we said, oh, you know, we met and we told, told him a bit about her. He was told, oh, yeah, her son died 26 years ago. And he said, gosh, you're still together. He said, because his experiences the number of couples that don't manage all those years is quite extraordinary mm -hmm. uh, and he put it quite interesting because he said that there's things that you that you might say which you can never unsay which is usually about blame and there's and there's the guilt that you both feel and there's the so yeah so again i it, you know it did strike me that being a bit you know as, as a couple hearing just how hard it can be, but you can get through it. You know, obviously we survived, we're married, we went on to have another son, we've got two, well, three grown-up kids now, and uh, um, and we've got grandchildren, although, as I say, when they were born, it kind of takes you back to, God, this is all going to go wrong, of course, you know. Um, so, yeah, so there's a way through, but it's, as you can probably tell, you know, 26 years in the line, I, I still find it pretty hard to talk about. How do you feel, in your experience, that... Or, or do you feel that your grief has changed? Um, probably, probably less, it's changed less than you'd imagine. You know, I can still get, as, as, as you can probably tell, I can, I still, I can still get as upset as I, as I like. I always was a bit soft, I guess, but um, I'm, I'm kidding. But, yeah, I, was, I was always, you know, this has left me a more, a more emotional fish, if that's the right word. You know, and, uh, and, uh, and I also am, um, I would like to think, and I guess I've had some people reassure me this is the case. I've, I can understand other people's, you know, suffering a bit better. You know, I could, you know, I, was, I wasn't bad at my job, but I think, you know, again, you, know, you always look for positive. I, I do generally think that when it comes to you know, understanding people's distress and depression and post-traumatic stress disorders and things, I can, I can put myself in their shoes a little bit more easily. And uh, so I guess, mm. you know, I try, yeah. I think that maybe that's a positive that came out of all this. But in terms of where my grief has gone, it's never, it never goes away, but it's maybe not there. I mean, I do remember those first few days, you know, you know it's, it's waking up and being remembering, oh, God, this has happened every day for, you know, it seemed like weeks and months. Um, and then, you know, that's, that doesn't happen now. It's, it's, it's only when I talk about it or, you know, things that might trigger me, makes me think about it, but just quite often that, you know, it's, so, so I think grief is something which leaves you primed in a certain way. Lots of people experience difficult things and it affects them in different ways. But yeah, you know, I don't think you ever get over these things. You assimilate them and allow them to, you know, they, they change maybe the way you view 
certain things is how I would put it. As a psychiatrist, were any of your feelings or emotions a surprise um, in terms of things you'd learned and then now to have sort of first-hand experience? Yeah, like an academic level, I thought... You know, occasionally I would stand back and think, ah, this is, this is, you're simply going through a bit of denial here, David, you know, you're, or you're, you've started to work through. But what it became clear to me was that it's real life's a lot messier. I mean, obviously textbooks and learning about a topic such as the, the stages of grief, say, is, you know, it's interesting and a little bit academic and you can sort of, you know, try and explain it to people. Living through it, you realise it's a kind of messy, non-linear thing. You know, you, you you might predominantly be in a state of denial for the first while, and you might be predominantly working through your feelings for a while, and you know, but it, it comes and goes. So again, I, 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 it has informed my practice. I mean, for instance, when people are suffering from depression, they'll have, they'll generally speaking, you know, respond to treatment and go get better. But then I'll have a bad day and think, oh, that's it, I'm back to square one. But I can tell, you know, not just because I've read it, but because I've experienced it, you know, yeah, just one or two bad days and you see you're back to the beginning. You pick up again you've, and it's sort of, you've stepped up a little bit. Your know, things will, you know, time does change how you're predominantly feeling. So it, 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 it maybe didn't surprise me. It reinforced some of the things that I thought I knew and it certainly made some things much, much clearer to me in terms of, human emotions really you know but yeah it's just learning isn't it so, yeah. I think having had sort of conversations with so many different parents about how they reacted and those different sort of stepping stones of grief that they experienced some people experience them all at some point I don't remember being in denial, I don't remember being angry, um, and I, and other people. Like Jen, you were saying, as a as a usually very calm person, your emotions completely <laughs> surprised you. Yeah, I definitely channeled that anger. Um, yeah, it, and it was surprising, very surprising, and it still surprises me now. I think, mm. and I don't think since there's ever been a time where I felt that angry again mm-hmm. yeah I, I, I my, my situation because basically yeah we could have got very angry and I know people in the same position have sued the health board and got loads of money I kind of took a bit of pride out of we'll, you know, we don't want money you know we'll step away from that so as I do remember Alison my wife you know was that right? it probably was really telling me you know, telling me why, why wasn't I more angry? Why was I defending these useless people that let us down, blah, blah, blah? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, that, in a way that was a kind of form of denial, actually. That was me suppressing a particular emotion just because, you know, the kind of benefit of doing that was I felt kind of I had the moral higher ground, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm about looking for mere vengeance, you know. So but she was, she was mm-hmm. quite right. I mean, I got angry too in, in other ways. Um, but because I think denial is a, is a it's a, it's a complicated thing. It's not just pretending it never happened. 
I mean, it's like on the day that Rory died, me saying, right, well, let's get up and let's go. Um, we've got my baby. What was hanging about here for? Yeah, it was just kind of stupid, but it was a, it was a form of, you know, I hadn't actually even got my head around what had happened, really. So. Mm, that's really interesting that you say that because I, I remember when I gave birth to Alex and the midwife had said to me, you know, what do you want to happen? Do you want to, um, do you want to spend time with him immediately or do you want us to take him away so you can deliver the placenta and then do you want him to come back? What do you want? And I very much was adamant that I wanted to get every medical thing over and done with mm -hmm. and then I'll spend time with him. And she left the, you know, placenta birth, everything done. She left the room and within 15 minutes, I'd had a shower, um, I'd straightened my hair, I'd put makeup on and she came back in the room and was like, whoa. <laughs> like, and I remember her reaction was one of utter surprise that how on, why on, what, what was I? And I suppose I've never thought about it like denial before, but I suppose it was exactly that. It yeah, was, yeah, so, okay. right, let's get ready. Let's. <clears throat> Yeah, it's like a woman with a mission. Yeah, I know that's that kind of man with a mission, you know, just, you know, and I continued in that yeah. sort of way for a while, you know, I'm on a mission not to, you know, I'm not going to start suing the health board. I'm going to just get on with being a better doctor and all sort of stuff and channel it in that way. And I guess there's still a little bit of that goes on, actually, you know, if i honest. So. And was there anything that changed that, David? Do you remember a time where you started engaging more with, the feelings and the grief it took a while it took quite a while really mm. and um yeah well i suppose i mean our 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 son who is here finn was born only 14 months later um and I, so i guess almost immediately that year you know so it was april when rudy was born and died and alison was pregnant by September. And it was, and she, her, her mission was to get pregnant and have another baby. And she was so delighted mm. when we discovered it was a wee baby boy. Um, but I was, um, so she also, again, one of the perks of being in the mental health trade is I got to, we got to see the head of psychology. He was a very nice man. So Alison was seeing him and she said, I think you have a chat with David. Uh, and it was, she was pregnant at this point. And I was, he was, I think he was all for, you know, sending me to hospital or something because he was, I was, I was saying, well, you know, I, I realise, you know, I can't imagine we have a live baby. You know, I can't, I can't allow myself to think of that. So, and he was, what? You know, I said, you know, and he was, you know, he was very nice. And of course, that all changed when we did have a live baby. But um, and that's so. You know, to answer your question, it was, it was then when he was born, and I'd, you know, my mission to try and keep things right. And okay, I'd done my bit, and else was, we had a, had a, a lovely baby boy who was born alive. And, all the rest of it. Uh, I guess then I got a bit more in touch, really, with how much it affected me, you know, over that previous year or well, fourteen months, fifteen months, or whatever it was. Um, yeah, Finn was born the following May, so yeah, it's just uh, it's just thirty months. Actually. So, um, so yeah, the, the, so the, how how a father to try and be rational, how how a, how the father is affected by subsequent pregnancies, um, and as I say. You know, our daughter, we've got two grandchildren now, and just how kind of 
anxious a grandfather I was during those pregnancies, I think it's, it's, it's quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, I try not to be too much of a pain, but, you know. And when it comes to men and mental health, I suppose the, um, you know, the stereotype is women will deal with their emotions and men will bury their heads in the sound. Um, do you, how, how, true do you do you think professionally do you think that that stereotype is um well it's it, it, it broadly speaking it represent you know so it's, it does represent how society expects things to be and so therefore people you know, fulfill those rules you know men do you know again historically well it's, it's it's changed a lot i guess it's changed to some extent but you know historically and certainly at the time when i was experiencing my bereavement, our bereavement, uh, there was a there was still a bit of an expectation that I would get on with it and you know and you know and look after my my wife. I think people are, are less clearly of that view, but it varies a lot. There are there are fair fair chunks of society and certainly cultural differences between depending on your ethnicity and whereabouts in the country you are and your you know whether you're in a what kind of background and. Um, you know, where you are within society, so so so, so it's, it still is a bit, a bit of a truism. I mean, it's a simple, it's very simplistic, but yeah, there is still a bit more of an expectation of men, sub, you know, becoming well. Depressed men are often angry, angry and drunken. Depressed women are victimised and tearful. You know, that's you know. So so I see what I see in my practice, especially when I was you know, the more extreme end of it. I see a lot of men who are really quite miserable who express that through drinking too much and being aggressive, you know. Um, so and that physiologically there's a basis for that, you know, testosterone and all the rest of it. You know? so, uh, so, so, so how men uh, exhibit their emotions can differ somewhat from males to females. Um, I mean, again, you can see... You can see Angry women who abuse substances as well, but it's you know, if you're looking for a you know, kind of broad, um, yeah, kind of the broader picture, it does still hold true, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Mm. And is there a you know, is there a key to unlock those feelings in a healthy way, in you know, particularly in men? Yeah, well, I, I suppose it does. It, it it's not. It, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that clubs for men, like football clubs and Sands United and things like that, seem to work very well. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, obviously there are lots of men who've attended other forms of support and had individual befriending and gone with their wives and things. But there's still a fair chunk of men who find it much easier to um, have a kind of clubbish sort of thing going on. You know, you know, to be to have the sharing your emotions as, as the, um, the the kind of bonus to kicking a ball around you then get to have actually you know these people share the same experience and therefore you're able to kind of open up to them in a way that you might not with your other mates who don't share it so so, so, so I guess I think the reason why things like Sands United have developed is because there is that slight difference in either expectation or behaviour of men and those sorts of models of support work well particularly for um, blokes if you like I think undoubtedly the support the more traditional sports over the years have tended to attract or support women more than men 
female partners more than males, I think. So things like Sands United, uh, um, locally we've had some success with just kind of walking groups for for with a few bereaved fathers, and that's attracted a few extra. So, so basing it around some slight distraction rather than sitting there, it's then let's talk about feelings, chaps. Um, you either don't, or you do what I do, and it all comes out, and you can't, you know, you embarrass yourself by being well, emotional. I'm not, I'm not embarrassed, but you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it took me a while to get to grips with it myself, to be honest, even as an expert. <laughs> There's something really reassuring, isn't there, about hearing from David, somebody who has so much professional experience in grief. And in a way to know that even knowing all of that information, he still struggled because we all struggle. But there is still that feeling, isn't there, sometimes of we're not doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> and we're not, you know, we're not perhaps grieving as we should. Um, yeah. And it's it's really refreshing to hear him say, there's no right way. Absolutely. And still becoming emotional talking about it and then Mm -hmm. saying it's however many years ago and it's a long time ago I think that's it makes it feel safe to be able to do that still however long ago your baby died there are so many different ways aren't there of 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 getting your support and Sands offers a whole plethora of different ways to to get in contact and to receive that um you know, from the the phone line and to actually call and speak to someone to uh, the online web chats where you, you know, you if that feels too vulnerable to use your voice, you can type away. Yeah, and that's sort of one-to-one. And I guess the other space is the men's Facebook group, uh, which is a safe space. Again, if you don't need to speak, you can just type, but it's in a group setting and you'll have responses from other men um, affected by baby loss to support you and to empathise. And that has grown really quickly over the last few months since we set it up. So I think it's a, it's a really important space. And then there are, and, and this interests me a lot, because there are then groups that SANS runs that are perhaps not something you would necessarily associate with getting support. It's a doing group and then the support is always there. So you have your choirs um, where you can go along and you can sing, but the support is always there. But also there's Sands United. Yeah, so set up by a bereaved dad, uh, recognising that just doing something and not necessarily talking, but doing something in the company of other men who understood and got it and could be there if needed, just to send, you know, either a jokey text or something daft or equally something incredibly serious and supportive when needed. And and Rob Allen recognised that and set up Um, Sands United in Northampton and that's obviously spread across the whole of the UK and is incredibly beneficial. And someone we spoke to earlier on in one of our earlier episodes um, who's taken a lot of solace from uh, being part of Sands United is Peter Byram. His son Thomas died and for many years he didn't access any support and he's an avid rugby fan but when he heard about Sands United he knew that he needed to get involved. 
The support is is there constantly for the for the guys in the team. Every team around the country will use their WhatsApp groups. So some teams will have three or four different WhatsApp groups. One would be to you know for match day stuff, for training stuff, for social events. But there'll always be at least that one WhatsApp group that is there for support within the team. There's a lot of peer support with the players and the teams that you you get to know birthdays and anniversaries of other players' babies. So you're, you're mindful when it comes to if you're particularly close to a, a guy in the team, you put a message that's thinking of you and your baby and your, your family and this day and the support comes like that. But equally, it's the we sort of we encourage the guys and see that if you're if you're having a tough day, you, you know the, the tough days come can come 365 days a year they won't just come on the the sort of the birthday or, or an anniversary or the lead up to it you know something can you know and for me a couple of months ago I found something that happens in my personal life sort of quite triggering and was able just to I didn't message the whole team but I could it was a guy in the team on you I could message or I say like you know I'm just sounding off in a minute this is what's happening it's, it's bringing up a lot of memories for me and you know it's just it's just get a simple message back saying you know look you know I'm I'm here for you my phone's on ring me if you need to and it's that that support I think that guys didn't say didn't have before they became part of the teams but is there now there's also that that support in the in the change room as well before the game if there's a guy in the team who uh, that weekend or whenever you're playing a game it's close to their baby's birthday anniversary. There's more focus on them, more support thrown towards that side of the changing room, and yeah, it's sort of down to the managers to sort of go up to them and say, like, before the game, how do you want to mark it? And in the, in the Bristol team, we've, we've done it in different ways. It's one guy wants he he wanted to play the first few minutes of a a song that meant a lot to him, that sort of reminded him of his baby. We all got up and stood there in the changing room. He put his phone on and played it, and we all stood there in a circle, arms around each other, and and the way out, every every guy in the team went up to him and. You know, whether it's a pat on the backside or a hug or a fist bump, you, you you get that. You know that every guy in the team is going to go out and, and do their best for that guy and, and his his baby or babies on that day. And whether it's they choose a minute of silence before a game or a minute's applause, and even before training sessions as well, that the team would do it. So there's that there's that support. And yeah, you do get that it's a contact sport football, which as a rugby fan I find difficult to say, but it is <laughs> a, a contact sport. <laughs> You do get that physicality, and and sometimes you have to be mindful of why that physicality is there. Whether it's that players at an anniversary or another player is having a bad day, and to be able to watch them, and, and the best thing you can do for them sometimes is say that come stand on the side for ten minutes, and somebody in the team can have a chat with them just to to sort of take a bit of physical physicality out of it. And then this, after the game as well, the, the support's there as well. It's it, the, the teams would, you know, they'll go off for a, a mineral water and a salad after the game somewhere and <laughs> they'll be, you know, talking. And it, it becomes, and I, I, I find with the, with the Bristol team, I think with a lot of teams around the country then, particularly after the game, it becomes more of a family event because players, their partners and their families will come along and the children they've had before or after the loss will be there kicking the balls around sort of thing and, um, and then you go sort of wherever you go after a game, it becomes a bit of a, especially if the weather's nice, it becomes a bit of a family event. It sounds like it gives you the ability to to dip your toe into the support. So you can go there and you can play football and you can take the amount of support mm. out of it that you need. And if you do not want to talk, if you don't want to open up yeah. at that point, you've just got a game of football with a, with a group of lads or, you know, with a group of people and that's fab. That's, that's it. I'm always sort of, sort of keen to impress with the football teams that they're support groups that play football. It's, it's not the right ask that the, the emphasis has to be on the, 
on, on the support aspect of it. And the support aspect is very much there, whether it's the WhatsApp messages, whether it's team activities, match days and things like that. But for for breed parents, there's I you know, I didn't get to make any memories with, with Thomas. You know, when I when Denise was expecting Thomas, I on my way to work I'd walk past a school that he probably would have gone to and not far from us there's a, a sports ground and you know, when we were trying to start a family we should pregnant with him, I thought, I wonder if he's gonna be into playing sports, thinking, Am I gonna spend Sunday mornings in the winter getting freezing cold and soaking wet stand. I thought well, I was thinking I hope I am I'd love it if he wanted to play sports and that so I don't know if he'd ever done that and if I'd ever gone along and, and done that with him but playing football of all the guys that play for Sands United there's no two probably no two shirts the same because we play with underneath the badge we have our, our baby's name and we choose our, our squad numbers but it's particular to us so I play with with Thomas's name, I, I play with a couple of friends, baby's name, I the bad as well, but with, predominantly with Thomas's name. And I picked the squad number 27 because it was 27 weeks since the pregnancy. So when I play football, it's my opportunity to do something with Thomas. I'm spending a bit of time with with him and I, I sort of, by carrying his, his name on my shirt and onto the pitch, we sort of cross, we, we cross the touchline together. Whether I'm on for 90 seconds running around until I injure myself or I'm out of breath or whether I sort of walk around the centre circle for half an hour it's that time I've got with with Thomas to to do something with him you can't help yourself can you I heard you say touchline (laughs) 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 and did you or did you not play with a broken foot at one point no no I I did a Bristol 10k last year with a broken foot so um I always try to say this without sounding too much like Jeffrey but but what happened was I was I played a game for for signs like Bristol in uh, May or June of last year. I was about ninety seconds of the game. Um, tried running into the into the box to the other corner, and I felt some felt something pop in, in the back of my foot. And I I thought somebody had kicked me, but I, I looked around; there was nobody there. And I thought I knew I wasn't quick enough to run get, get away from somebody that quick. From how I had the feeling in the back of my foot. Um, I thought, oh, have I done my Achilles in? And anyway, I sort of I came off and I, I went home and the day after I went to the hospital and did an extra and I, I'd broken a bone in the, the back of my foot. So we had a game a couple of weeks later. We played Sands United Exeter and really, really kind of them. The, the guys that run the team, Adam and Jimmy, because I'd not missed a game for, for Sands United Bristol to keep my 100% record up, they agreed with the, the Exeter team as well that I could go on and I could I could kick off and then I, cause I had my foot in a, a surgical boot and I was on crutches. I could just just kick the ball away with my good foot and and hobble off um, to the sideline then. So it was, it was very kind of them to, to do so and let me do it. The imagery of Pete there with his foot in a boot whilst trying to still play football. Now, we like to end each episode by asking one of our guests for their hopes for the future. So these are Dr David Hall's hopes. When it comes to thinking specifically about how people are helped following the death of a baby. I hope that as much advances occur in the next 25 years as if occurred in the last 25 years. I, I really do. I mean, I bet it's a hope fewer babies dying. I think the figures and the research suggest that that's going to happen, so that's good. Voices of Baby Loss is an under-the-mast creative audio production.